good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. It's good to see you. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. If uh, you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. I'm glad that you're with us, and uh, we are thankful that you would uh, be with us this morning as we worship our God, um, as we get to sing to him and pray to him and come to his word. And the portion of his word we're looking at this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, the passage is also printed in your order of service. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning of 1 Peter 4. And we're nearing the end of our uh, study of 1 Peter. We've only got a few weeks left. Um, and one of the things that we've noted is that consistently Peter has called us exiles. Not just that we are to live like exiles, but that we actually are exiles in this world. That that's who we are. We are foreigners in a foreign land. Um, but but in encouraging us not only to uh, take on this identity marker, but actually to live in light of our exile, uh, Peter has oftentimes put encouragement or uh, motivational uh, aspects before us. And one of those is Jesus' return. Already he has mentioned that Christ is going to return a couple times in First Peter. He's going to reference it a couple more. And this morning in our passage, he says that the end of all things is at hand that we are living in the end of all things right now. And so that means that Jesus is going to return, that, that we are waiting for that day. So how are we to wait? That's the question that First Peter 4 is taking up. How are we to wait as we long for that day for Christ to return? As we live in these end times, how are we to wait? Well, First Peter 4, let's read. Beginning in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers." Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good servants of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you for this, your word. We thank you that, that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have given us your spirit as well as your word. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to the beauties of your word, and you would teach us how it is that we are to wait on you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We heard it right there in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. 
The end of all things is at hand. We are living in the midst of the end right now. Now, I know that that, that can sometimes be a point of debate and contention in Christian circles, um, but, but this seems to end the debate. We are in the end times right now. We are awaiting the day when Jesus will return. They were inaugurated in his resurrection, and they will find its culmination in his return. That we are living in the end right this minute. This is what we declare when we say the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, right? That we are waiting right now for the day when Jesus will return. He will come again, we declare, with glory to judge the living and the dead. That that is our hope. That in our day, in our lives right now, that Jesus is going to return. He has not left us to ourselves. That is a glorious hope. But it's still a hope that is pointing to the distant. It's still pointing to the future because the truth is, is right now, Jesus hasn't returned. And so we need to know how are we to live. In this end time, how are we to live? What are we to do? Well, the German uh, theologian Martin Luther, he once said that if Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. (laughs) I love that line. I love that line because I I think about what I would do if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. I, I would maybe throw a party, a celebration. Right? Maybe we would have lots of people over. Maybe, maybe I'd just kind of sit back and I'd just relax, right? pour a good drink, and just kind of watch the end come about. <laughs> right? Maybe I'd get caught up on all my Netflix shows because I'm not sure Netflix is, right? You know, I would just wait. <laughs> I would just wait. I would just wait. I would sit and maybe do nothing. But not Luther. I would plant a tree today. He would actively wait. And that's what we're to do. We're to be active waiters. Now, that, that isn't as oxymoronic as it might sound. Kids, think about it this way. We're, we're done with Halloween, and so now we have two, two more holidays coming, right? The really good holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And if you're like my family, that means that at, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, guests and visitors and, and family are going to arrive. And sometimes their arrival is the most exciting part of the day, right? And so you're waiting. You're waiting for your favorite aunt to show up or your crazy uncle, because we all have a crazy uncle. Maybe some of y'all are the crazy uncle. (laughs) Uh, The favorite aunt or the crazy uncle or grandma or grandpa. We're waiting for them to arrive. And so, kids, how do you wait? Well, you probably sit by the window, and you're watching every car go by, and you're anticipating that maybe this is the one. And Or you hear a car door slam, and you run to the door thinking it's grandma or grandpa, or you're asking mom and dad, you know, just a few times, like a hundred times, you know, is, are they coming? When are they going to be here? It's, it's basically the equivalent of, are we there yet? Except we have nowhere to go. <laughs> you wait, you sit, and you stare. You don't really do much, but if you're like my family, your parents won't let you just wait like that, will they? They want you to work while you wait, You have to vacuum the carpet, and you have to wipe down the bathroom, and you have to set the table and fill the glasses with water. You have to wait actively. And that's what we are to do. You see, as we are living in these end times, as we are living in the midst of waiting, we are to wait actively. We are to wait actively. If Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. We prepare by planting. We prepare by waiting. We don't just sit at the window staring at the yard, but we wait with activity. And so what is this activity? 
Well, that's what 1 Peter is getting at here. What is this activity? The first activity is that we have to be convinced of who we are. That as we wait, as we live in these end times, that we have to be convinced of who we are. And who are we? Well, we are people who were once dead in our sins. Look, that's what Peter describes in verse 3. He said, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, as we read over those things, it'd be easy for us to think, well, wait a minute, I've never done anything as extreme as what Peter's describing there, and so this really doesn't apply to me. This really isn't about me. Well, that'd be the wrong way of appropriating this. You see, Peter said the Gentiles live this way, and the Gentiles is basically code word for those people outside of God's people. And so though maybe we didn't live with these sorts of extremes, we all at one time lived according to our own passions and to lawlessness, our own idols. So just because we haven't engaged in all of these doesn't mean that we haven't actually lived in rebellion against God because we did. We had. In fact, Peter says that, that those days are, are no more, that, implying that we once did live this way. But if you are trusting in Christ, they are no more. They are past. I mean, that's what he said, right, <clears throat> in the beginning of verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what they do. The implication is clear that, that though you may have lived this way before, you live this way no more. You are not to live as though you are still in your sins, but, but instead you are to live as though you are alive for God because that's what you are. You see, God didn't leave us in, his, in our sins, but he made us alive. And how are we to live? Well, verse 2 tells us how we live for God. We live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And what is God's will? What is God's will? That, that is a wonderful question. And I bet every single one of us has asked that. What is God's will for my life? And Peter tells us what the will of God is for us. That we would turn from and not return to our sin. That is the will of God for our lives, that we would turn from and not return to our sin. I mean, look at verse 1. He says, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way, with, excuse me, the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, so Peter's saying that the manner of our life, the, the general posture of our life should be away from sin. Now, he's not saying that we are going to achieve some sort of perfection in this day right? Because we know that that's not true. We won't be like Christ until we see him as he is. That's what 1 John tells us. And we even know that Peter himself didn't experience perfection, right? We remember he was the one who said, Jesus, I'll be with you to the end, even to my death. But then he renounced him, right? Three times he said, I don't know who this Jesus guy is. And even one of those was to a little girl, but then God restored him, right? Jesus restored him. Do you love me three times? Yes, I love you. So feed my sheep. But then even after he was restored, Peter still sinned against God, right? He still sinned because we know in Galatians, Paul had to, had to confront him for his racism, for putting one ethnicity above another because he wouldn't even associate with the Gentiles any longer. He would only associate with the circumcision party, with the Jews. And so he had to be confronted again. And so we know that Peter himself didn't achieve some sort of perfection, so that's not what he's talking about. 
No, what he's talking about when he says that we cease from sin is that that the manner of our life is going to be a life of repentance, of constantly turning away from sin, that we are going to pursue a life of obedience, even if it means a life of suffering. We are going to pursue a life of obedience, even if it means a life of suffering. And we're going to do that because that's exactly what Christ did. It's how verse 1 began. Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then Peter says in verse 4, regarding the way that the Gentiles live, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. See, what Peter is indicating is that our unwillingness to return to sin may bring with it mocking and maligning. That there might be some who would look at our lives and they would they would make fun of us and they would speak ill of us because we will not engage in their sin. And what he's telling us is that it is better to be done with sin and rejected by men than accepted by men and return again to our sin. That we would actually suffer at the hands of others for the sake of holiness and obedience. Because that's who we are. We're not those who are dead in our sins any longer. We are those who are alive to God. We are alive to give glory to God. And so we wouldn't return to this way of life. This is a good reminder for us because it's so easy for us to return. The last few weeks I've been watching some documentaries on Netflix. Uh, some documentaries that CNN put out about the different decades, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all this. And, and I've been watching the 90s one as I exercise recently. And, and it's kind of weird to watch like my childhood on, on television because um, we all grew up in the 90s, right? Um, so um, uh, at least I did Kurt Cobain and all this sort of weird stuff. It's like, man, this... Anyway, um, so in the early episodes, they're focusing on the fall of communism on the fall of communism and, and how the West has won, right? The Cold War is over, the West has won, communism is no more in the Soviet Union. And so the way that they depict this, the video, the pictures that we see are of the Berlin Wall falling, of course, right? Because that was the symbol of the Cold War, the Iron Curtain. And so there are these people, they're standing on the top of the Berlin Wall and they're hammering it with hammers and sledgehammers and they're breaking pieces off and, and gaps are forming and people from the east are being reunited with people from the west and there's one Germany and they're coming together and they're celebrating and they're rejoicing and everybody's happy. It's beautiful. They're no longer under the oppression of communism, but they now have freedom. I started thinking about this, like how beautiful this is, how wonderful this is. But then I started thinking, what if like after a day or a week or a month, what if after a year of, of tasting this freedom, some of those people who had lived under that oppression decide, you know, I think I want to go back to it. I've been given this new freedom. I, I can walk away from this oppression, but I think I want to return to the oppression. We would think those people are crazy, wouldn't we? And yet, every time we return to our sin, we are doing something just as crazy. Because we are returning to the oppression of death. We are returning to rebellion against God. 
And that's not who you are anymore. If you are in Christ, we are not to return to our sin. We are to walk in the freedom of the gospel. We are to breathe the life that God has given us. We are not to reject it. We are not to return to our sin. But we are to live as those who are alive. That's who we are. That's who we are. And we have to be certain of who we are as we await Jesus' return. As we live in these end times, we have to be certain of who we are. But this active waiting isn't simply a certainty of who we are. It's also a commitment to one another. It's what verses 11, 8 through 11 are getting at. Peter is telling us what this commitment to one another looks like. It looks like love and hospitality and service. It looks like love. Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus is going to return. And so verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, as you wait, love. Of all the Christian virtues that we are to take on, love is the most important one. Right? That's what he said. Above all, we are to love We are to love one another earnestly, earnestly not not meaning an emotional intensity, but meaning a persistence, a persevering in love. That even in the midst of difficulty, even as we wait, we don't stop loving one another. And why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now that doesn't mean that my love for you or your love for me redeems us of our sin. Because we know that, that my love is not sufficient enough for that, that. That the only thing that redeems us is the act of Christ's love on that cross and his resurrection from the dead. So it's not talking about our eternal redemption. And it's not talking about covering sin in the sense of cover up, right? That's maybe where our cynicism might go. That we just cover up sin. We pretend like it's not there. We forget about it. That's not what Peter's talking about either. No, covering our sin, covering one another's sin means that we endure with one another. It means we forgive one another when we do sin. It means, as David Helm put it, that that we would express a love that takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from one caught on fire. That we would love each other in such a way that, that there would be no air for sin to be fueled, and for the fire to erupt. That we would love each other in such a way that sin would have no place here. That we would be quick to forgive, and quick to repent, and quick to endure. That love, above all, we would love. But we don't only love, we also show hospitality. That's what verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, Now, this principle would have been very significant in the first century because in the first century, there weren't inns and hotels like we think of them, right? You couldn't just stop at the Marriott on the way through town. And so you had to be dependent upon local people to take you in, to give you a place to sleep, to give you food, to give you protection. Now, in our day, we we have the Marriott, (laughs) You can stay at Hilton anytime you want. We're not dependent upon one another in this way. And yet, the principle of hospitality is probably just as important today as it was then. And not for the sake of protecting one another from bandits that might be on the road, but for the sake of connection. Because the truth is, is that we live pretty secluded lives. 
right? We live in safe neighborhoods. We live in safe places. We have security systems, and we have fences and garages and all these sorts of things, and, and we live very, very siloed, safe existences where we're actually not connecting with one another and where we're actually very distant. Sure, we, we may connect with one another for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, but then we go home and we return to our self-contained existence. And yet what we are in great need for is deep and personal connection. That in our day and age, what we are in need for is deep and personal and physical connection. And hospitality is the medium that we can provide that connection by inviting others into our homes and sitting at our tables and laughing on our couches. I'm not talking about entertaining where everything is perfect and spotless. I'm talking about inviting people into our lives, and not just, just those that are easy to invite in, but especially those that are hard, who no one's inviting in, that we would welcome them into our lives. And we do this not only in our homes, but we do this here. We do this with one another here every week. And so if you're a guest or a visitor, if this is your first Sunday, it would shock me if someone hasn't greeted you already. <laughs> and if they haven't greeted you, haven't welcomed you, maybe, maybe you slid in and no one saw you, but, but it would shock me if you got out of here without someone saying hello. <laughs> and I don't apologize for that. That is our way of saying you are welcome. We are glad that you are here. That though we don't know you and we have never met you, we are happy that you are in this place. It is our way of showing hospitality. And, and Christ the King, I pray that we never stop doing that. I pray that, that every Sunday we would not just be excited about seeing our friends and the people we haven't seen for a week and getting caught up with one another, but I, but I pray that in addition to that, we would be excited to meet that person that we've never met before. And that we would show up and not just look for our friends, but we would look for those people who, who we've never met and we've never seen and who don't look like us, and don't speak like us, that we would always be a place of hospitality. Because that's how we wait. That's how we show our commitment to one another, that we love and that we also show hospitality. But, but it doesn't end there. Our commitment continues with service. Service in both word and deed. Look at verses 10 and 11. Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. God, out of his grace to his people, has given us gifts, each one of us. That's what Peter said, as each has received a gift. Every one of God's people has been gifted for the work of service. And so no one can say, I have nothing to offer. No one can say, there is nowhere for me to be servant a servant in this place. There's nowhere for me to contribute. Now, God, out of his love, has gifted us, and he has given us these gifts, not for ourselves, but for one another, for the benefit of others, to use our gifts, not for our sake, but to steward them as God intended us. That's what Peter said in verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, that we would use our words and our gifts, not as we would desire, but as God intended. That we would serve, and we would show hospitality, and we would love. 
Friends, this is how we wait. This is how we actively wait. But you know, of all the, of these things, like hospitality and service and love, do, do you know what they all have in common? They all have in common the fact that they are directed towards others. Now, that's like, well, duh. <laughs> of course, Penny. I mean, you can't show hospitality to yourself. At least I don't think you can. And, and we're not just intended to love ourselves. We're intended to love others. Well, duh. But, you, but that has serious implications, the fact that we are called to live this way with each other. And the biggest implication, as far as I can see, is the fact that as we live this way with one another, it's going to be very, very messy. It's going to be really messy. I mean, think about it. As we live lives of love that covers sin, it implies that we're going to see sin. Right? I mean, we don't need to love in a way that covers sin if there is no sin. (laughs) And so the implication is clear. As we are living together, we're going to see one another's sin. It, It doesn't mean we accept it or we get used to it, but it's going to be there. That's why it needs to be covered. And so I have to ask you, like, who, who are the people in your life that know your sin? Who are the people in this room? Because the people of God are supposed to be committed to one another in this way. Who are the people in this room that you confess your sin to? And I'm not talking about your spouse. That's a foregone conclusion. They know your sin better than you do. <laughs> it's not very funny, actually. <laughs> it's very painful. <laughs> But who are the people, the men and women in this room, that you are living in such a way before them that they have the opportunity to love you and cover your sin with that love? Because that's how we are to live. In the mess of one another. When we invite people into our homes, we're we're inviting them into the failings of our lives. Because they get to observe the ways that our spouse has frustrated us that day and our impatience with our children, and they see firsthand how we forgot to put the roast in, and, and now it's raw, or, or we put it in way too early, and now it's burnt, and we're having to run out at the last minute and get pizza, and everything isn't perfect and right and beautiful, and we're a big mess. And when we invite people in to show them hospitality, that's what they get. Not museum-like, five-star Michelin restaurant-type pristineness. They see our lives. When we serve, it means sometimes our service isn't going to be enough, and we're going to fail. And when we finally do succeed, it means that sometimes maybe we're not going to get a thank you or an appreciation. You see, as we wait for Jesus' return by committing to one another, it means there's going to be mess. And this is so hard for us because we don't like mess. Right? We don't like mess. We, we, I, I would imagine... That all of you who brought a bag in this morning, be it a, a purse or, or a shoulder bag or a book bag, I imagine that if we look through most of them, we would find little bottles of hand sanitizer. If they're not in your bags, they're probably in your car, and that's the first thing you're going to go to when you get in the car, right? Because you shook all these hands, right? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off the grime and the germs. And if it's not in your car or in your bag, it's probably at your house. And it's not probably just the little ones, but it's those like industrial-sized pump action. They're going to sanitize your skin so much that it burns it so clean, right? Y'all have those. I've seen them. (laughs) And we take that posture of cleanliness and advert, um, of, 
of aversion against germs and mess and warts and grime, and we apply it to our relationships, and we want hygienic, clean relationships. Free of germs and free of mess and free of dirt. But friends, the truth is, is that as soon as I enter into a relationship with you, it gets pretty nasty and gross and germs and dirty. Because when I enter into a relationship with you and you with me and us with one another, we are bringing all of our sin. We're bringing all of our sin. And we're bringing all of our warts and we're bringing all of our faults and we're bringing all of our failings and that is the exact reason why we need to live committed relationships with one another. Because it's not intended that we would ignore these things or that we would pass them over or that we would just look good. It's intended that we would live in such a way that love would reign in this place. That love would cover our sin. That we would show hospitality to one another even when it's dirty. That we would serve one another even when it's grimy. That is exactly why we need this. And so friends, let us let others cover us with with their love. Let us let others cover us with their love and let us love others by covering their sin. Let us us welcome others into our presence. Let us give of ourselves in service. Let us do this as we wait because the one that we wait for has done this for us. This is what he did for you and for me. For those who were dead in our sin but now alive in Christ, we have been made alive because our sins were covered by the blood of Christ. We have been made alive and been given a community because we have been hospitably welcomed into the presence of the Father. We've been made alive and are dead now to sin. And we have been called to be committedly waiting for his return because Christ has served us by his death on the cross and his victory over the grave. This is why we wait. This is why we actively wait, being convinced of who we are. This is why we wait, being committed to one another. We wait because Christ, the one that we wait for, is returning. And before he returns, he has given us one another so that we as his people would give him glory. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you have not left us alone. As I already prayed, you have given us your spirit, you have given us your word, but you have also given us your body, your church. And so I pray that as we wait for that day when you, Lord Jesus, will return, that great and glorious day when we will see you as you are and we will be with you for all eternity, I pray that we would live convinced of who we are, that we are new creations in you, and that we would live committed to one another in service, and hospitality, and love. Help us to do this, Lord Jesus. Help us to give you glory. We pray in Christ's name, and God's people said, amen.